This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So this episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is part of a two-part series on the history of redlining. And often our two-parters, like they can stand alone reasonably well, but in this case, part one really is necessary to making sense of part two. So if you've skipped part one, or like you're maybe a brand new listener to the show, we really, really encourage you to pause this one, listen to our previous episode, and then come back to this one. Also, one of the things that we are going to talk about today is the language that, it's, that assessors used when making color-coded maps of neighborhoods in segregated cities to use as a reference on whether mortgage lending in those neighborhoods was desirable or not. Uh, we're also going to talk about the language and the instructions and language in other documents also. And some of this language is frankly offensive. And we are including it as part of exploring these maps and what they represented. Uh, we read from a couple of instructions in the previous episode that were definitely the mildest of all of this. These maps it sort of demonstrate and also predict ongoing patterns of housing discrimination that have persisted since they were created. As we discussed in the previous installment, the Homeowners Loan Corporation was a Depression-era government program in the United States that was meant to save the homes of people who had defaulted on their mortgages. In 1935, the HOLC started its city survey program to map more than 200 cities around the United States, creating color-coded keys of where mortgage lending was desirable and where it was not. They looked at all aspects of the neighborhood, including the terrain, the buildings, the amenities, the residents, and the economic factors tying all of this together. The thought process that was kind of guiding the approach to all these maps was that neighborhoods go through a predictable and inevitable cycle. First, they would be shiny and new and desirable, with lots of affluent people moving into brand new houses in an area with lots of amenities. Then they'd get a little older, a little more dated, a little less well-maintained. Then, quote, undesirable elements would, quote, infiltrate these aging neighborhoods. 
Eventually, these undesirables would completely take over, and the whole neighborhood would be ruined thanks to crime, vandalism, and the population living there. So combining this overall view about how neighborhoods age with data about the neighborhoods themselves and the people who lived there, the HOLC made a collection of color-coded maps. Grade A, the first grade, was green. This was the best classification, and these were the most desirable neighborhoods. Grade D, the fourth grade, was red, or hazardous. These were neighborhoods where mortgage lenders either did not operate or strongly preferred not to operate. The middle two grades, blue and yellow, which were also known as still desirable and definitely declining, were not as desirable as green, but they were not off-limits the way these red hazardous neighborhoods were either. So here's how the HOLC described the four categories. We're going to read them word for word. Quote, green areas are hotspots. They are not yet fully built up. In nearly all instances, they are the new, well-planned sections of the city and almost synonymous with the areas where good mortgage lenders with available funds are willing to make their maximum loans to be amortized over a 10 to 15 year period, perhaps up to 75 to 80 percent of the appraisal. They are homogenous, in demand as residential locations in good time or bad, hence on the upgrade. Blue areas, as a rule, are completely developed. They are like a 1935 automobile, still good, but not what the people are buying today who can afford a new one. They are the neighborhoods where good mortgage lenders will have a tendency to hold loan commitments 10 to 15 percent under the limit. Yellow areas are characterized by age, obsolescence, and change of style, expiring restrictions or lack of them, infiltration of a lower-grade population, the presence of influences which increase sales uh, resistance, such as inadequate transportation, insufficient utilities, perhaps heavy tax burdens, poor maintenance of homes, etc. Jerry-built areas are included as well as neighborhoods lacking homogeneity. Generally, these areas have reached the transition period. Good mortgage lenders are more conservative in the yellow areas and hold commitments under the lending ratio for the green and blue areas. As a side note before Holly reads the red part, if you're not familiar with the term jerry-built, a jerry-builder was a term for a speculator who would build a lot of houses out of very cheap, shoddy materials with kind of unsubstantial construction. Uh, Not even the Oxford English Dictionary is sure exactly how the name Jerry got attached to it. But to go back to the description, we're going to hit red areas next. Quote, red areas represent those neighborhoods in which the things that are now taking place in the yellow neighborhoods have already happened. They are characterized by detrimental influences in a pronounced degree, undesirable population or infiltration of it. Low percentage of homeownership, very poor maintenance, and often vandalism prevail. Unstable incomes of the people and difficult collections are usually prevalent. The areas are broader than the so-called slum districts. Some mortgage lenders may refuse to make loans in these neighborhoods, and others will lend only on a conservative basis. So... After a brief word from a sponsor, we're going to look at the maps of Richmond, Virginia, as an example of what these maps actually said about the neighborhoods they were documenting. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. 
<laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show. And I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. So to get back to these maps, when you look at all of the documentation that went into creating these maps, there are some clear and obvious patterns that emerge. We're going to look at the maps of Richmond, Virginia as a primary example because those maps and all of their supporting documentation have been digitized as part of a project by the Digital Scholarship Lab of the University of Richmond. We're going to link to that from our show notes. Uh, And to be clear, I looked at the maps for many, many, many other cities and their documentation as part of researching these two episodes. And the reason that we are using the Richmond maps for the bulk of the examples is because the way that they have been organized online is extremely easy to jump back and forth between the maps and the documentation and to go back and forth between the different parts of the documentation. Um, These same trends are definitely evident in other maps all over the country also. When it came to the inhabitants, assessors gave a basic description of the types of people living in each neighborhood. The instruction was, quote, what is the general type of occupation, i.e. executives, businessmen, retired professional, clerical, skilled mechanic or factory workers, laborers, etc. In Richmond, Virginia, as our example, the residents of green sections were described as, quote, best people. Blue section inhabitants were some more of the best people as well as salaried workers and, quote, responsible trades class. In the yellow section, most of the inhabitants are, quote, working people, mechanics, mill hands, and a number of other specific hourly wage jobs. I will say I did not find as much categorizing of the people in green as best people outside of Richmond. Like, there were more specific things about them being various affluent roles, like executive people and people that were generally wealthier. So... In the Richmond maps, there are 12 red neighborhoods. And as we said before, these are the ones where mortgage lending was not seen as desirable. According to the assessor, they have the lowest annual income of all of the neighborhoods. They also have the highest percentage of renters. And seven of the red neighborhoods out of the 12, as I just said, the inhabitants are described only as Negro. Four of those descriptors are left blank. 
for comparison, there's only one left blank in each of the blue and yellow sections, both of which have far more sections than red. Uh, None of them are left blank in the green section. The one, uh, there is one red neighborhood that's marked as, quote, laboring whites. So while the white neighborhoods included information about what people actually did for a living, all that was noted about the black neighborhood's inhabitants was that they were black. There was a whole separate part of the Richmond assessment that was specifically about race. Richmond's green, blue, and yellow neighborhoods are all marked as zero Negro. All of the red zones are 75% or more Negro, apart from South Richmond, which was zero. When this map was made, South Richmond was a working-class white neighborhood, almost entirely surrounded by two other neighborhoods, each of which had a 95% black population. Richmond assessors were also, to note, as all other assessors were, the infiltration of inhabitants. Here was the instruction to assessors, quote, any threat of infiltration of foreign-born, Negro, or other lower-grade population? If so, indicate these by nationality and rate of infiltration like this, Negro rapid. That's where the quote ends. In the Richmond map, the red zones that are not already 100% black were noted with an infiltration of Negro, and one yellow section was noted as being infiltrated by renters, working people. The Richmond maps also omit lots of other detail about any of the majority black neighborhoods. There's no description about the terrain or the buildings. It was enough to know that black people lived there. And while there were blanks left at various spots for other neighborhood types, this was really, really disproportionate in terms of the black neighborhoods. It would be easy to write all of this off as the work of one rogue racist assessor who worked in the Richmond, Virginia area. But this same pattern is true in maps from all over the United States. The black neighborhoods are overwhelmingly marked in red and the red neighborhoods are disproportionately skipped over in terms of actual detail other than the fact that black people live there. There's also the fact that the instructions themselves uh, talked about noting an influx of black residents as a problem. As an example of a non-Richmond map where these trends are equally apparent, in Akron, Ohio, assessment includes this in a grade C neighborhood made of predominantly Italian rubber workers. Quote, only three Negro families located in entire area, and these are better type colored and own their own homes. That's the end of that quote. A grade D neighborhood in Akron is described as being predominantly Jewish rubber workers and laborers, but with an, quote, infiltration of colored fairly rapid with, quote, present heavy Negro encroachment gradually increasing, end quote. As we said earlier, we are going to link to so many of these maps in our show notes. And in many cases, people who find maps of their own cities and neighborhoods will see the same trends still present and who lives where and which neighborhoods are considered nice. So there's some debate among historians about exactly where these maps fit in with the process of redlining. The maps themselves weren't discovered until 1970, long after they were made. They kind of disappeared from view for a while after the Great Depression. It's unclear how they were actually used in practice. One train of thought is that the HOLC maps started the practice of redlining, especially redlining black neighborhoods specifically. Uh, Another argument is that this practice was actually already in place. 
So these maps are a symptom and a documentation of something that was already happening, not the cause. A third argument is that none of this proves anything. It's impossible to tell whether lenders were really discriminating based on race or whether their actual decisions were based on individual borrowers' financial needs or not. One thing that's used to support that argument is that a lot of the HOLC's own original refinancing efforts, which, like we said, were part of mortgage relief during the Great Depression and started years before these maps were actually made, did happen in neighborhoods that were later coded to be in categories C or D, so yellow or red. However, these maps are also not the only evidence of racial discrimination in housing in the 1930s and beyond. A Federal Housing Administration underwriting manual from 1935 includes the instruction, quote, protection against adverse influences is obtained by the existence and enforcement of proper zoning regulations and appropriate deed restrictions. Important among adverse influences are the following. Infiltration of inharmonious racial or nationality groups, the presence of smoke, odors, fog, etc. The National Association of Real Estate Brokers Code of Ethics, as amended in 1952, reads, quote, A realtor should never be instrumental in introducing into a neighborhood a character of property or occupancy, members of any race or nationality, or any individual whose presence will clearly be detrimental to property values in the neighborhood. In other words, the instructions themselves made to map surveyors, underwriters, and real estate agents contained clear directions to discriminate against homebuyers and neighborhoods based on race. So we talked in part one about homebuying being viewed as an investment. This can be hard to believe for people who lost lots of money or their homes in the most recent housing market crisis in the United States. I, my home, declined precipitously in value. (laughs) Uh... That's my personal experience. But in the 1930s, the median home price in the United States was about $50,000. In 2010, it was more like $150,000. So these patterns of discrimination, which were either started by or documented by the HOLC neighborhood maps, excluded minorities, especially black people, from being able to participate in that long-term investment. It also prevented predominantly black neighborhoods from making a transition from rental neighborhoods to owner-occupied neighborhoods. As a general rule, owner-occupied neighborhoods are better maintained and more stable than rental neighborhoods. The idea here is that people who own their homes are more deeply invested in the home itself and the good of the surrounding neighborhood than people who rent. This is not uh, any tirade against renters at all. We have Tracy and I have both been renters. We have been there, but that is a statistical fact that renters just don't tend to uh, have the same investment in their home. Also, sometimes the people that buy houses to rent out do not have the same investment in a neighborhood because right. they're just there to collect rent. So, again, not knocking renters in the least. Uh, a 2014 study at Penn State put a dollar amount on the difference, uh, and that is that owner-occupied neighborhoods benefit their neighborhood to the tune of $1,327 per home per year. 
Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep-dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand, and how do you navigate success and failure, and really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal, and they're candid, and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Family secrets. It turns out that just about everyone has them, which accounts for the incredible outpouring of community and sharing of these stories that's happening as a result of my podcast, Family Secrets. My name is Danny Shapiro, and I'm a writer author of the instant New York Times bestselling memoir, Inheritance, which I wrote after discovering a massive secret that had been kept from me all my life. That discovery changed my life in good ways and hard ways and led to this podcast. I hope you'll join us for some incredible conversations about family, identity, and what happens to both when the secrets that have been kept from us and the secrets we keep finally come to light. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. So that, to sum that up again, meant that these neighborhoods that had been excluded from being eligible for mortgage lending meant that they were sort of trapped as being only rental neighborhoods without people who live there being able to make the transition into being homeowners and to put more investment into their own uh, surrounding area. So the HOLC ceased operations and its assets were liquidated in 1951. And from the late 1940s through the late 1960s, a number of court decisions and laws attempted to address the ongoing discrimination within the mortgage and home buying process. Racially restrictive covenants were found to be unconstitutional in the 1947 Supreme Court case Shelley versus Kramer. A black couple, the Kramers, had moved into the Shelley's neighborhood, which, per a restrictive covenant, was supposed to be all white. The Shelley's took the Kramers to court, and in a unanimous decision, the court found that states' enforcement of racially restrictive covenants violated the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. The Fair Housing Act was passed in 1968, making it illegal for property owners, landlords, and real estate brokers to discriminate against people based on their race. The government also soon took steps to keep lenders from discriminating illegally. The Home Mortgage Disclosure Act, which was passed in 1975, required lending institutions to report data about all of their mortgages. And in 1977, the Community Reinvestment Act encouraged banks to reinvest money in the neighborhoods where they did business. However, even though redlining is illegal now, lenders, insurance companies, and other businesses have continued to engage in it. And that's in spite of a surge in lending to minorities in the 1990s that seemed like it might close that gap. 
We're going to spend a few minutes talking about some examples. A study of Detroit, Michigan, which is a majority black city, looked at 2000 census data and compared the proportion of black residents in the census tracts against mortgage lending in the same area. It found that, quote, despite the identification of other significant factors, such as educational attainment, the presence of independent effects associated with race demonstrated that in the city of Detroit, redlining occurs in the contemporary period. A 2008 paper in the Journal of Economic Issues looked at loans in Mississippi and found denial rates for minorities to be exceptionally high in a way that wasn't explained by actual economic factors. In that study, Black and Hispanic borrowers actually did have generally weaker credit histories than white or Asian borrowers, but the denial rates for Black and Hispanic borrowers were really out of whack compared to the actual number and extent of that difference. There have also been investigations of actual lenders and financial institutions. In 2011, the Department of Justice settled a case against Prime Lending, a wholly owned subsidiary of Plains Capital Bank, for a nationwide pattern of discriminating against black borrowers. In May of 2015, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Urban Development announced a $200 million settlement in redlining claims against Associated Bank N.A. for unfair lending practices that went on between 2008 and 2010. Quote, the settlement stems from a HUD secretary-initiated complaint alleging that from 2008 to 2010, the Wisconsin-based bank engaged in discriminatory lending practices regarding the denial of mortgage loans to African-American and Hispanic applicants and the provision of loan services in neighborhoods with significant African-American or Hispanic populations. And of course, this pattern is not confined to mortgage lending. Accusations of redlining have also been leveled at the insurance and student loan industries. In terms of insurance specifically, some people argue that the increased premiums charged in minority neighborhoods are appropriate because those neighborhoods are more expensive for the insurer. But studies of that idea are actually conflicting in their results. And the term is also used today to describe retailers whose prices are higher in the lowest income neighborhoods. So I said at the very top of this two-parter that it was inspired by a conversation where somebody demanded that we explain to them something. And the explanation that was in demand was why have Asian people succeeded more It was actually grosser than that. It was, why is there no racism against Asians if there's so much racism? And I was like, well, okay, there is racism against Asians. It just looks a lot different from racism racism against other minorities because of all these social factors that have gone on since the abolition of slavery 150 years ago. And one of the things that I mentioned was redlining. And the person I was talking to clearly didn't believe that redlining was ever a thing and thought I was talking about the more recent mortgage crisis, which is a different thing. Like, his argument was that the whole mortgage crisis had been uh, caused by giving loans to people who couldn't afford them, which is only one piece of that story. A lot of the loans that were given to people who couldn't afford them were, in and of themselves, predatory loans. (laughs) Like, the loan structure itself was wrong and was like setting people up for failure. They were, do- people were doing, or banks were doing things like giving people separate loans to cover just the interest 
which is a yeah. whole bad situation. Like there was a lot going on besides that. Um, this was not a case where the person actually later said, thank you for explaining that to me. Uh, he actually went away after I gave him, uh, uh, like a link to the Wikipedia page about redlining because Wikipedia seemed to be the only source that he considered to be, uh, worthwhile. It was a yucky conversation, but this whole, I had heard of redlining when I bought my house. Me too. Be- right. Because I bought my house through a program for first time home buyers. Uh, and one of the things that they were specifically trying to combat was the ongoing problems in the housing market that came about because of redlining. And so that's where I heard about it for the first time. And when I started researching this, what I thought I was going to find was a lot of neighborhoods that had been redlined. So people wouldn't provide mortgage there. And it was like, it happens to be that the poorest communities often were predominantly African-American. And it was like a weird chicken and egg thing. That is what I thought in my head I was going to find. I was completely forward when I actually found instructions on survey forms yeah. that were specifically like, note if there's an infiltration of, quote, Negroes. Like, I was not, I did not, it was worse than I thought it was going to be, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, the wording makes it sound like you are sending, like, a spy out in wartime. Like, you have to look for these horrible people. No. But. Yeah. Makes my heart hurt, frankly. Me too. So. I have some uh, listener mail to take us out on a much lighter note than this, Uh, which we talk about things like this because they're important and because they're examples of how history continues to affect people's lives today. So uh, this this listener mail, though, is about something much more lighthearted. It's from Rebecca. Rebecca says, oh, it's from Becca. It says Becca at the bottom, so I'll call her Becca. Becca says, dear Holly and Tracy. I really enjoyed the good humor versus popsicle episode and my ears perked up at the mention of Frank Epperson in Oakland. I live in Alameda, an island. Yes, an island next to Oakland. I had heard the story of Frank Epperson, but had no idea about the intricacies between good humor and popsicle. Neptune Beach, where Epperson sold some of the first popsicles, was an amusement park in Alameda. Alameda was a getaway for wealthy San Franciscans. They had vacation homes and visited by traveling on the ferry. There was not a Bay Bridge yet. Some of the homes built are still in Alameda and referred to as the Gold Coast. Unfortunately, in the 70s, a developer filled a huge portion of the estuary and built apartments that blocked the Gold Coast views. Neptune Beach is also gone. However, there are some remnants of little vacation cottages now turned into homes. Neptune Beach operated from 1917 until 1939. The Strethlow family owned and operated the beach and filled in a section of bay to add an Olympic-sized swimming pool and a roller coaster with views of the bay. They had swimming races and a hand-carved carousel and Ferris wheel. The park closed in 1939, mainly because of the Great Depression. Also, the Bay Bridge was built and people lost the allure of of traveling on the ferry. The main access point to the beach was via the ferry and also where one paid admission. But with cars, people were able to access the beach without paying also leading to its demise. And then she sends a link of some neat pictures of the park, which we will put in our show notes. Thank you again for your great podcast, Becca. Thank you, Becca. We didn't talk about Neptune Beach much at all, except for in passing. So it is really cool to hear that first person uh, account of various things from there, from somebody who lives in the area. 
If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash history and on Twitter at history. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com. We're also on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash history. Our Instagram, we are also on Instagram at mistinhistory. Uh, if you would like to go to our parent company's website, you can put in the word mortgage in the search bar and you will find uh, information on how mortgages work, a lot of which was inspired by these changes that were made in the industry after the, the Great Depression. You can also come to our website where we're going to have links to so many of these maps so you can see them for yourself. Uh, we also have show notes for all of our episodes. We also have an archive of all of our episodes. I should say that the show notes are the, for the episodes that Holly and I have worked on. <laughs> they don't really exist as much before. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. We are going to Italy after the success of last year's trip to Paris. We are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class. How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? Maybe you're relocating or having your first baby or leaving a relationship. Just starting or just starting over. On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.